This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... What do we need to do to fix a broken system that COVID has shown over and over again is not functioning? We do need a World Health Organization and we do need a strong World Health Organization. COVID is just a whole different ballgame. We were not prepared because we'd become complacent. The 194 member states of the World Health Organization are gathering in Geneva for the annual World Health Assembly. The body decides global health policy. And in this pandemic year, nothing seems more important than that. Do we need to reform the WHO? What about health systems in general? What about access to medicines and their patents? How much are we really prepared to change? The social contract has shifted when we're talking about vaccines and pandemics. We need to see some significant dose sharing from rich countries with poor countries now. We have a crisis of humanity today. We do not respect each other. We do not respect values. To explore all of this, I'm joined today by Suri Moon of Geneva's Global Health Centre, Maria Guevara, Senior Operations Advisor with the medical charity Médecins Sans Frontières, and Thomas Cuny, Head of the International Federation of Pharmaceutical Manufacturers. To start, I asked Suri to name her priorities for the World Health Assembly. The big agenda item, I would say, is what do we do to fix all of the broken, all of the pieces that have been broken in, in COVID. Maybe I can be a little bit more eloquent in, in how I put that. What, what do we need to do to fix a broken system and to fix a system that COVID has shown over and over again in so many different ways uh, is, is not functioning and is, is not strong enough? Yeah. Let's be clear about this, um, because there have been a lot of calls for reform of the World Health Organization. You're not talking only about the WHO here, are you? No, and of course there have to be uh, reforms and changes at WHO. I think nobody disagrees with that. But when I think about what were the biggest problems in this um, pandemic, it wasn't actually WHO. I mean, in many ways, WHO really rose to the occasion. I mean, it was it was not perfect, of course. No human institution is perfect. But um, you know, where did we see the biggest fault lines and the problems? It was really political leadership within countries where you had certain leaders just completely abdicating responsibility for getting the pandemic under control and essentially letting their people get sick and die. And we're seeing this again, and unfortunately, in, in India, but we've seen it in the US, we've seen it in Brazil, we've seen it in Tanzania. I mean, there, <laughs> there's no shortage of places where we've seen complete failures of political leadership. And I could go on and on down that list. But we've also seen it in the complete absence of international national cooperation, the fact that countries cannot rely on each other. Commitment needs to be kept and contracts are binding. Advanced purchase agreements need to be respected. Earlier this year, that inability to cooperate and support one another was graphically illustrated by an ugly row between the European Union and the United Kingdom over vaccine supplies. The government has warned the European Union that any attempt to block the export of coronavirus vaccines to the UK would be counterproductive. The WHO's calls for solidarity, made right from the start of the pandemic, have gone largely unheard. 
What should that tell member states about how to approach health in a post-pandemic world? Maria Guevara of Médecins Sans Frontières. How do we rethink about the emerging post-pandemic situation? And I cannot help but think, is there going to be a post-COVID time, actually? And I think, you know, when, if you really look at the virus itself, the history of the virus, coronaviruses in general, I think we're going to have to learn to live with the coronavirus. It's just that how smart we're going to be about it. Yes, we've made some gains, definitely. So we could be congratulatory of ourselves and celebrate that. But it's still, we're still woefully unable to address the current situation as it is. And it's still a pandemic rather than something that we're able to live with. And so we're really failing collectively. Let me just ask you then, because we've got a vaccine in record time, many countries with pretty efficient test and trace. So where are we failing? What is woefully inadequate, as you said there? Give me a, an example. You know, it's it's a failure on all fronts. Um, there's the failure of the value system of what we really consider a solidarity. I'm not sure that we collectively understand how connected we really are today and how when we speak of securing the health for all, do we really mean for all? Do we see all the vulnerable people, all those people who are marginalized? The current healthcare system and the current policies that surround that does not actually cover all citizens or all people. And I think when that policy is flawed from the beginning, you will fail to address and meet that obligation to provide health and well-being for all. Now COVID, which is yet another story, another disease that nobody, not the world understands. So how do you explain that to... Well, how do you mean the world doesn't understand it? Scientifically, we still try to understand what the disease, how it's going to evolve, what it's going to look like. The vaccines themselves are not 100% effective. We know this will help some way or another. Um, it is not the magic bullet that we try to push it to be. We still well, maybe there isn't a magic bullet. There isn't, and I think we need to stop speaking around that. We need to be honest, and and I think we failed in the communication of how to protect ourselves around that. In every corner of the country, Americans have been rolling up their sleeves today. The statistics around vaccination tell a story that's both good and bad. Now that some countries have started to roll out the coronavirus vaccine, you might be asking yourself, when will I be able to get one? If you live in Africa, the answer for the moment is not yet. In countries with rapid rollout, deaths and hospitalizations are falling. But 80% of vaccines have gone to wealthy countries. In the last few minutes, the UK's mass vaccination programme against coronavirus has begun. The world's poorest nations have received just 0.4%. Nevertheless, for Thomas Cooney of the International Federation of Pharmaceutical Manufacturers, the record speed with which not one but several vaccines were developed is something to celebrate. Most people last year expected, if you're lucky, we might start massive rollout in the summer of 21. And actually, we were half a year faster. It's amazing. The fastest vaccine development in the past was Ebola. 
and it took four years. In this case, for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, it took 326 days. And also, we were lucky because we have not only one vaccine, but we have several vaccines which are effective. And you have to recall that the FDA and WHO early last year asked for an effectiveness of at least 50%. And then, wow, you have two mRNA vaccines exceeding 90% effectiveness. I think we have really seen a triumph of science, but also how effective regulatory agencies can work without compromising safety. And I think we're all really pleased because I don't know anybody among my friends, colleagues, family who don't suffer from pandemic fatigue. Can I just ask you if you're a bit disappointed that some countries are racing so far ahead and with vaccination and others really don't have anything much at all? Or are you confident that this playing field will level up quite soon? I'm not that confident about quite soon. We see massive rollout of vaccines in the US, in the UK, in Europe. The supplies for COVAX, in particular for Africa, have trickled because nothing uh, gets out of India for understandable reasons. And that's something which, honestly, world leaders need to address. Uh, We need to see some significant dose sharing from rich countries with poor countries now and not in four or five months when the US soldiers have vaccinated all their populations, including the young and healthy. Well, the US, of course, though, has proposed patent waivers, which took us all by surprise. Um, We didn't think uh, the the world's leading capitalist superpower would go that far. Isn't that a generous move? I don't think it's a generous move. I think it's a political move, but it's a political move which is really not fully thought through. I can quote something from H.L. Mencken, who said, for every complex problem, there's a solution that is simple, neat, and wrong. And that's exactly the case with the patent waiver, because when you look at the challenges in the ramping up, scaling up of manufacturing, the problems are actually trade barriers, and the US is a main culprit for these trade barriers. The problem are bottlenecks in the supply chains, made worse because of these trade barriers. And the bottlenecks are that because of the traveling of global capacity, there's simply not enough ingredients. Those are the issues which need to be addressed. And to overcome the vaccine equity, short term, we really need solidarity and dose sharing. The head of the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros, he's also pleaded for a patent waiver, pointing out that the laws around patents were not designed for a global emergency. Wouldn't it be a good move for the pharmaceutical industry to say, yes, in this one case, without precedent, we agree? It, it might look good reputationally, but actually at the same time, you know, simple, neat and wrong solution can do more harm than good. That's exactly the situation here. And there, with all due respect to Dr. Tedros, he also falls for the populist fallacy because actually the patent waiver wouldn't give you a single more dose. We have seen such a rapid development of vaccines because of the strong innovation-based ecosystem. We have seen a deep sense of responsibility among these vaccine developers for making sure that they 
leave no stone unturned to scale up capacity and enter into partnerships. Now, these partnerships go way beyond a patent waiver because the patent waiver wouldn't give you the keys to manufacturing the vaccines if you don't have the know-how sharing, the sharing of trade secrets, the willingness actually to send teams of experts into your factories to show you how to use the equipment, how to bring the 280 ingredients which Pfizer-BioNTech uses from 86 suppliers going through 19 countries together. Therefore, the patent, you know, it's less than the icing of the cake. It wouldn't really give you what you need. Well, Sarah, the White House now says that it supports waiving the intellectual property protections for the COVID-19 vaccines. Now, that is a move that could help speed the distribution of vaccines around the world, but is also clearly already hitting the U.S. drug manufacturers. In a statement, Shares of major vaccine makers Moderna and Novavax dipped on the announcement. It's perhaps not a surprise that the pharmaceutical industry isn't a big fan of a patent waiver. For Suri Moon, though, the U.S. move, a big shift in policy, might not have immediate implications for vaccine access, but the long-term implications of a waiver could, she believes, signal huge changes in the way we finance health. It was a major about-face for the U.S. government, and I think very few people were expecting it. From from my perspective, a really welcome development. I think for uh, 40 years or more, the U.S. has been one of the most um, staunch supporters of very, very stringent uh, international rules on intellectual property. And so it was a complete change in tone and attitude as well as, you know, content in terms of their their position. Um, But how realistic is it? For COVID-19 vaccines, we know that an IP waiver alone is not going to be enough to deliver vaccines, you know, tomorrow to all of the countries that currently don't have enough. It's not adequate to, to overcome a number of the different barriers that, that we face. But indeed, the principle, the norms, the rules around how much flexibility should we have in international IP rules, particularly for public health concerns, and particularly when we're talking about crises, I think this is really one of the key issues at stake. And so if indeed countries can agree on the terms and conditions of a waiver, I think it will clarify and broaden the space for public health and broaden the space for improving access to medicines when indeed we have crises in the future. And the resistance of the pharmaceutical industry probably can't stand up to the US. Well, this is not for them to decide. I mean, at the end of the day, the the TRIPS waiver is a decision for governments at the WTO. And of course, the pharmaceutical industry has a very clear position um, and has influence through, you know, lobbying of capitals. But uh, ultimately, this decision is not in their hands. For me, one of the big signals that the U.S. announcement sends is that the social contract has shifted when we're talking about vaccines and pandemics. We know that up until this point, the public and the U.S. government has actually been the single largest investor in vaccine research and development, and that governments have reduced and in some cases completely taken on the costs of research and development, of scaling up manufacturing, offering very secure uh, commitments to buy once vaccines have been developed, that companies have faced very, very little risk. And so the rationale to have intellectual property there in the first place as an incentive for innovation, basically, basically evaporates. 
the public sector had said, the rules of the game are different in a pandemic. We will put all of that money in and we're not going to put that burden on industry. But we didn't see the industry turning around and saying, okay, in exchange for all of this, we will make all the information and technology openly available. We will help other countries or other other companies to manufacture these vaccines because we are all indeed truly in this together. Instead, what we heard was a very well-worn set of arguments about you must, must, must have patents to have innovation. And I think what we've seen in this crisis is you must have money. You must have ways to overcome risk. You must have governments acting decisively. And we, we had all of that. And when you have that, you don't need patents for innovation. The social contract that I think we are seeing being renegotiated is, all right, if we take on the risk and put the money on the table, we as societies, as taxpayers, then in exchange, we expect that technology should be able to be made available to everybody. So if there's an expectation for a new social contract for health, who exactly needs to sign up to it? Who do we hold accountable for our access to health? The World Health Organization? Member states? Ourselves? Maria Guevara again. Accountability mechanism is not only to the member states, it's also all other actors, private sectors. So those are probably where we're also failing to make accountable when a lot of the healthcare supports today have been privatized and externalized from the public sector. So maybe we need to call to the governments to say, you need to bring back the public sector, make that a global public good. You need to make businesses and private sector accountable as well. So, you know, maybe there are different layers of accountability that we need to put on the table. And then we can work on the true common values of solidarity and um, the rights and principled approaches that we need to actually bring back as as a humanitarian actor responding to medical humanitarian crisis. We have a crisis of humanity today. I mean, we do not respect each other. We do not respect values. And I think this is a larger global social issue that we need to address collectively. You think the pandemic has exposed that rather ugly side of us? It's exposed it and it's forcing us to address it. But that's the good thing, isn't it? Yes. If we listen... I'm pleased that more leaders are now joining the call for a pandemic treaty. And have world leaders been listening? Our headlines for you today. World leaders call for an international treaty to deal with future pandemics. A good number have backed a call for a pandemic treaty, a way, the WHO chief Dr Tedros believes, to prevent another pandemic. But Thomas Cooney cautions against rushing into complicated treaties that he believes require a lengthy discussion. There's this big talk about the International Pandemic Treaty. I would hope that one pauses a bit for reflection because rushing immediately while the pandemic is still going on and say now we need the pandemic treaty rather than really look into where are the flaws, for example, of the international health regulations, which took years to negotiate? And I just want to call out one example. Dr. Tedros, absolutely consistent with international health regulations, criticized and called out and attacked countries imposing travel restrictions early last year. And with hindsight, I would say, actually, 
containment and travel restriction was one of the most effective non-pharmaceutical interventions, which probably should have been called upon early. But the international health regulations explicitly ruled them out. Therefore, there are some of these reflections which need to take place before you rush and get into pandemic treaty, uh, where you really need a follow, follow scientific, intellectual and political analysis. We're getting to the heart of the problem. Everyone, it seems, agrees that global health strategies need to change, but no one seems to agree on what exactly that change might look like. The independent panel reviewing how the world handled the pandemic called for more powers and more reliable funding for the World Health Organization. As Suri Moon explains, at the moment there are difficulties around the way member states offer money to the WHO, and what they expect in return. It's not just about, is their budget big enough? For me, the more important principle is, do they have enough political space to maneuver uh, so that they can indeed act as a... um, trusted and credible uh, independent body whose job is public health, whose job is not to protect the interests of one country over another, for example. They have to be that impartial arbiter in the event of the next potential pandemic. And in order to do that, you can't have the purse strings constantly being pulled by the funding countries, you know, trying to influence WHO one way or another, trying to restrict the political space to, to act. And this is something that is actually doable. They merely have to agree to do it. And this is one of the biggest failures of, of the, the post reforms is um, governments simply refused to do it. They didn't want to give up power. They didn't want to have a strong public health agency that could turn around and criticize them or that could turn around and say, hey, you guys are not sharing information or you're not being transparent or you're not cooperating with the world. They didn't want a WHO that could turn around and do that to them. And now we're seeing, I think, some of the consequences. There's no getting away from it then. The World Health Assembly has a mighty challenge ahead. We've had 15 months of pandemic and almost three and a half million deaths. There have been job losses, business bankruptcies, bright futures interrupted. No one, not governments, not the WHO, not the pharmaceutical companies, and certainly not any of us, wants to see another year like the last one. We have to learn lessons. We have to do better. So what about our guests on Inside Geneva? To end our programme, I asked them what they had learned from the COVID-19 pandemic in the hope their experiences and insights might provide some guidance towards a better, fairer approach to global health. First, and that's an important lesson to be drawn, everybody, whether they like WHO or are more critical of them, Everybody who saw this global pandemic, the biggest public health scare since Spanish flu in 1918-19, realized that we do need a World Health Organization and we do need a strong World Health Organization. There's no questioning of that. It's WHO which needs to call out the pandemic. It's WHO which needs to lead on the regulatory approval, the pre-qualification, the emergency use license, the medical guidance uh, on a world level. I think that's absolutely unquestioned. It has forced a reckoning in all countries 
Do we have the institutions? Have we made the investments? Do we have the capacities to deal with public health crises? And the next one probably will look very different. You know, every single crisis we've had over the last few decades has been distinct in its own way. But you have to invest enough in health systems. You have to invest in disease control. You have to invest in research and development of technologies. You have to have international rules and agreements between countries to cooperate. Otherwise, everything falls apart. And certainly what we've seen over the last year is how quickly everything did fall apart. <laughs> so I think that the reckoning is not just at national level, but the reckoning is also increasingly happening at the international level and, and certainly here in Geneva. First of all, we need to learn the lesson of humility. We also need to open our eyes and recognize that COVID is just a whole different ballgame. We were not prepared because we'd become complacent. But we cannot escape the reality. It's security actually today depends on our solidarity. We have this opportunity. COVID is an opportunity. We need to redefine that collective security in that frame. And we need to work on this together. If there was ever going to be a post-COVID era, I have to be optimistic. We actually have no choice. We have no choice. We have to be optimistic and we have to fight the complacency, the traditionalisms, the numbing effect of the wish to normalize the new normal. We have to keep fighting and stay optimistic that we will find a way. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. My thanks to our guests, Suri Moon, Thomas Cooney and Maria Guevara. And of course, thanks to you for listening. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swiss Info. You can hear more by going to our website, swissinfo.ch, including several episodes which have charted our path through the pandemic over the last year. We explore other key humanitarian challenges too, from the future of the United Nations to the war in Syria to look at the history behind the Ottawa Convention Against Landmines. And, of course, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time. <laughs>